Hello there. This is CSW, creator of Incarnation Red. If you enjoy Incarnation Red and want to help keep it going, support the show on Patreon via the link listed in the episode notes down below. In return, you'll receive a variety of perks ranging from a monthly Q&A slash horror gaming livestream to a chance of having a mini-episode made based off of you and your fears released on the main RSS feed for everyone to hear. Additionally, all patrons receive access to an exclusive patron-only Discord server where you can chat with fans and myself, watch live streams of pre-release episode editing, and join in on regular horror movie nights. I rely on your support to keep the show going, so any amount, no matter how small, will help me bring you more scary stories more often. Link is in the episode notes down below. Additionally, if you are a fan of audio drama podcasts in general and want early access releases plus bonus content from Incarnation Red, absolutely sign up for Apollo Plus, a creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators for just $10 a month. You can think of Apollo Plus almost as the Netflix of audio dramas, offering exclusive content, ad-free and early access releases, behind-the-scenes content, supercuts, and a whole, whole lot more, all by supporting the creators you already know and love. With Apollo Plus, 70% of the revenue goes directly to us creators and provides all of us, both creator and listener, with a place to enjoy the shows we love, such as Afflicted, 13, and of course Incarnation Red, and a whole, whole lot more. And of course, Hemophobia, my upcoming horror podcast, will be there too, so join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com slash plus, that's P-L-U-S. Hello, welcome, those who are listening, slash watching, Incarnation Red. As you know, this is not normally the kind of way it goes, but since we're between seasons right now, I was wanting to get some interesting other related content. And today we have, in my humble opinion, what is quite possibly the most interesting horror writer currently writing in the modern day, uh, Mr. Brian Evanson. Brian, how are you doing today? Good, thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. We are very much happy to have you. Um, so, as... Those who recognize Brian's name will probably know that he has a book coming out later in August um, entitled The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell. And I have myself a fancy-dancy little galley reader's copy right here. Um, and uh, for starters, I think I'll just go ahead and say that I thought um, your previous book, some of you may also know this one, Song for the Unraveling of the World, thought that one had won the, the award for most depressingly apocalyptic book title. Um, <laughs> but you've really upped the ante with uh, The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell. You've really... Uh-huh. You've uh, you've upped your game there, so I'm very impressed on <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I mean I think yeah they definitely both have a kind of yeah uh, post-apocalyptic uh, end of the world feel to them. So I'm glad to hear that my I'm getting more depressing as I go. <laughs> always always ideal for for writers of that style. Um, so yes, this new book is coming out. Uh, it sounds like based just on the context of the way this past year has kind of gone. It seems like it was written in the midst of a lot of uh, global global turmoil, to put it lightly. Um, is that, uh, I guess that's fair to say. Well, I mean, it, it's funny because the book was actually pretty much done before the pandemic started. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and so so I think it was actually, I think I turned it in in maybe March or or maybe April of last year. So there were, there were at least kind of hints that things were getting really bad. Um, but it was before things got super, super bad. Um, and and so so I think that was on the horizon. But most of them have been written in in 2018, 2019. A few earlier than that, even. I see. I see. That is eerily predictive, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wish it wasn't as predictive as it turned out to be. Uh, <laughs> Don't we all? Um, so yeah. Um, speaking of stories that were published um, hitherto, the publication of this book. 
Um, the first one I had actually come into contact with was the opening story, Leg. Um, I read it mm-hmm. in uh, Tiny Nightmares, which was that, uh, as right. you know, that uh, little collection of short horror stories, I think, I believe, that came out on Halloween, uh, last Halloween. I, th- I think that's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, Leg. Uh, from the get-go, I could tell it was a... <laughs> I was like, if I didn't know this was Brian Evanson, I, I would have from the first couple sentences, because it's just very, uh, treats the human body in an interesting way. And, and I'm curious, I know you get probably asked this question a lot of like where your ideas come from, but I am curious to know, leg, why leg? Why specifically did you think of how, you know, how a leg would act independently of its owner? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure where it came, but I just, I really like this idea of, you know the idea of, of of a part of something kind of acting in a in a in a way that's different than the whole, or the idea of a prosthesis being something that's that's alive and maybe more than it seems to be, and so it really started with that. Just thinking about you know this this, this notion of this creature that is almost parasitic that that both is there as a kind of help to this person, and also at the same time seems to be using that as a way to get other sorts of things that it wants. Um, and so, so that that I think was interesting to me. Just thinking about the way in which humans uh, interact with things that aren't necessarily human, um, and and also, I mean, it, it is kind of a story of someone who's selling their soul, and mm. uh, you know, making these choices uh, with this 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 demon or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's it's a creature. It's hard to know what it is exactly. <laughs> um, who is is obliging her and what she wants. And, and it, it ends up taking things in a very strange direction. Huh. It's interesting you use the words um, selling one's soul, because that kind of, uh, I won't say religious, but I, I, I suppose, yeah, pseudo-religious imagery almost reminds me of the tower um, from mm-hmm. Song for the Unraveling in a similar way, kind of mirroring um, an old story style in a very apocalyptic, or I guess, you know, post-apocalyptic context. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something. I, I was someone who was raised in a religion. I'm, I'm excommunicated now, excommunicated Mormon. Mm. And, but it's certainly something that, that really structured the way I thought about the world. And, and I do think, I mean, this, this notion of, of responsibility and, and, and you know, I, I think that, that the leg is there almost as this temptation um, and, and this, this, this force or this power that's manipulating the, 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 the character as well as... Um, you know, allowing itself to be a friend or be used. And so those lines between, you know, to what degree is this someone who's my servant? To what degree is this someone who's manipulating me? To what degree is this something that's really taken advantage of me? Mm. Um, is, you know, those lines become very tricky, I think, in some ways. I see, yeah. Um, and speaking of, uh, of um, I suppose... <sighs> Uh, I, I guess post-apocalyptism. Um, another story that stuck out to me was, uh, as distinctly kind of, I guess, what one might say relevant to the present day, uh, was the Nameless Citizen. Ah. Um, yeah, a very long, or not long, but long for your stories, <laughs> a lot of yours, lasting just a couple pages, but that one, it really brought the reader, at least brought me on a bit of a journey, and certainly not a, uh, not one without pain. Um, no. And I'm curious to know, it, it strikes me also as a post-human kind of story, and, I, and I'm curious to know what kind of uh, inspirations went into that yeah a lot of these stories in this book are, are seem to be about post-humanism or the end of humanity in some way or another um but so so that story um i have a, a, a novel which is called immobility hmm. um and and i see that story is very much tied to to that it's it's not exactly a sequel to it it's more like adjacent to it so kind of a semi semi 
you know, uh, yeah, semi-sequel, I suppose. I don't know quite how to describe it. But both that, Nameless Citizen, and, and another uh, novella I wrote called The Warren um, seem to me to be operating in, in not identical worlds, but kind of adjacent worlds. And just thinking about, you know, what's the relationship of of someone to to the society they live in, but also to the world as, as at large. And in that case, of course, you have someone who seems to be transformed in some ways and is being called upon by these these people who haven't been transformed, uh, but may have been created in, through different means, uh, and, and him making decisions about what to do about it or what not to do about it. I see, I see. Yeah, I, I've once, uh, when asked to describe your writing uh, to folks, it's... Not has been difficult, but it's been uh, it's been interesting to see their reactions. I think because it, people aren't really used to writers that both ride the genre line and also have a unifying style. You know, you've got a lot of examples. I think of writers who, um, I suppose, are able to write in a lot of different genres, are able to write in a lot of different styles, but it doesn't feel like there's anything holding it together. But I do not. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there is always something kind of holding your stuff together. And and, and you work in sci-fi quite a bit. Um, yeah. And I've. I think there's certainly a role. I guess what is the role? Do you think what role do you think genre plays there? Well, so so I, I feel like yeah, I, I work in, in 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 sci-fi. I work in horror. I often work in those two things together. Sometimes more fan, generally fantastical writing. Sometimes more realistic writing or or you know crime-related writing. Um, but I think that there's something in terms of just the mood of the pieces or the style that holds them together. There's a kind of you know the way in which the language is being used as well but but more than anything i just just think that there's a kind of general um uh, relation to the world and the strangeness that the kind of the basic weirdness that holds things together i I suppose but yeah i I do like to think that if you pick up um a story of mine you'll recognize it as as a brian evanson story um that it seems like a story that i'd be most likely to write i see um, another story that caught my attention, um, partially because um, of the mythology it plays off of, was uh, Myling Comer, uh, mm-hmm. one of the earlier stories in the book, um, but one of the certainly one of the more scarier stories than, in my in my opinion. Um, it almost struck me as kind of Legati esque. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious, what about the mythology of the Myling um, sort of spoke to you? And you, I, I suppose you can kind of sum it up for those who might not be familiar. Yeah, I mean, I, I was—I I have several stories, kind of in different books, that kind of play off uh, Scandinavian mythology in some way or another. And and this one, um, the I think is is this this kind of creature that um, uh, has been um, uh, buried at the crossroads. It's an unborn baby or an abandoned baby who's left at the crossroads. There's different ways of, of reading it, and depending on what what legend you're working with, it really really depends. But but the idea basically is that a baby who's been abandoned by their mother um, at the crossroads and left to die. And they kind of end up coming back as something that haunts and that, 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 that uh, wants to kind of get on people's backs. That doesn't come up in my story so much, but there's a <laughs> sense of them riding people and, and, and taking them to the graveyard and being so heavy that when, when people are walking with them on their backs, they kind of slowly sink down to the earth of the graveyard. Um, and so, so I just, I had this, you know, it was, it was a really different sort of strange mythology than anything I knew. And I got asked to do something for an anthology that was going to be kind of folk horror mm. And, and I just, I'd had this idea for a while and I just, I remembered things. My, my, um, 
my my great grandmother um, was uh, uh, a Norwegian, and mm. and um, when she was kind of near her the end of her life, she kind of reverted to speaking mainly Norwegian. And I don't know Norwegian, I can't follow her, but I remember visiting her and, and her, her trying to communicate and also just having lost her English. Um, and, and it kind of, you know, just my memory of that experience kind of came together with this strange Scandinavian monster, if you want to call it a monster, um, and, and, and kind of allowed me to kind of uh, uh, explore the story in a way that hopefully is pretty creepy and a little bit frightening. Your hope succeeded, my friend. <laughs> Good. Um, good. But yeah, it was um, it was interesting because I, I had never really read anything of yours that had taken a folk horror route. Admittedly, I, there's probably just stuff I haven't read, but um, I don't think there's much to be honest. Yeah. I see. Um, so somebody that is familiar with your books, but in particularly in particular your short story collections, will know that your books, your short story collections, although they are different stories, they have a thematic through line, um, and there is kind of a reason they're all. Uh, I suppose collected in the same thing. They may not tell mm-hmm. a literal story, but they do kind of tell an emotional story. Um, yeah. At least that's my perception of it. Um, yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And I'm curious, what uh, again, without giving you know too much away, if you don't if you don't want to, uh, what would you say is sort of the emotional through line of the glassy burning floor of hell? Um, well, that's <laughs> that's hard to say. I mean, I think there's a kind of bleakness. There's there's a sense of what is our relationship to the world and what are we doing to the world and what's potentially left there? There's there's a lot more kind of stories with an ecological bent in this book than in previous books, I think. That's not the exclusive thing by any means. Uh, there's a kind of focus on post-humanism, which I think it kind of ties into that. Um, and then I, th- I think generally, I mean, I think there's a focus on what it means to be part of a community or to refuse to be part of a community. And so, you know, there's several stories in which which people are are um, kind of called upon to be be part of a group and, and kind of refuse to do it in various ways. Um, so, so I guess those would be the things. I mean, there may be other things that you've seen that, that are more more relevant or more, um, you know, that, that struck you more than than those things. It's <laughs> oh, possible. I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's what makes that's what makes a book rereadable. You know, is like you can kind yeah. of keep coming back to it and getting something new. Um, yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, when I was writing it, I think the idea was that all the stories would be talking to one another, so that you'd see something in one story that would kind of be responding to something in another story, or an idea in one story would come up that would kind of recirculate into another story, and that that kind of notion of of you know ideas kind of being discussed and moving, and and themes being discussed and moving, I think was pretty important to the book. I see. So speaking of your short story collections, um, one of your I think one of your more popular collections was A Collapse of Horses. Um, and I've heard you tell, you say that the title story came from an actual experience that happened to you about horses laying down. I'm, I'm, am I correct? Yeah. Um, so so the title story started because I was. it was when my wife and I, my wife now and I were dating. And she was living in San Francisco and we were walking through Golden Gate Park. And in the middle of Golden Gate Park, there's a horse paddock, which I hadn't realized until we were walking through. Um, and and we just happened to come across this this little horse paddock on a day when all the horses were um, lying down. Um, there were maybe three or four, not very many horses. Um, but it was really strange to me because I'd never actually, despite living, you know, growing up in the West, and despite having kind of been around at least a little bit around horses growing up, 
Um, I'd never seen horses lying down before. And so, and initially, as we kind of approached this from a distance, um, I couldn't tell if they were moving. It seemed like they weren't moving. And so there was this, this very weird moment where um, I just kept on worrying about the horses and kind of feeling like I was approaching this this horse slaughter or something <laughs> and, and got, you know, closer and closer. And, and, you know, as I did, you know, it, it wasn't until we were quite close that, that, you know, one of the horses kind of flicked its tail and I realized, Oh, it's lying down. It's okay. Um, and, you know, I went away from that and just kept thinking about that and kept thinking about this moment of not knowing if they were alive and, or if they were dead and, and just the strangeness of being in that space and, and then that kind of became the generative um, engine for the story. And, you know, and since then, I've talked to people who, who uh, have owned horses, and they're like, oh, yeah, they lay down all the time. It's not a big deal. <laughs> um, but, it's, but just the fact that I didn't know um, put me in this position where, you know, I, I had this very strange experience. Um, and, and that ended up, I think, really, you know, generating the story. Yeah, that's interesting. Those are the images that stick with you. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Did your uh, wife, or I guess at the time girlfriend, did she, did she happen to know like, this is going to be a story or anything like that? You know, she she knows she knew me well enough. I think she she knew that I was responding to this in a very particular way. So I don't think she knew exactly where it was going to go, but she wasn't surprised at all. And in fact, she's a writer too. She writes young adult uh. literature, uh, and and also children's books and. And, you know, really different sort of writer than I am. Her books are kind of, you know, um, uh, much more cheery than mine are. Um, but but she's, when she's been out and talking about things, she often talks about that experience and thinking about, you know, um, this is, some, we have this experience together. It's an experience that, that I would never think to use. But it's something that my husband, like, immediately, you know, he ended up kind of turning it over his head and working on it. And, and it became something. And I think that's part of it too, is you just, you know, different sorts of writers um, are, are drawn to different sorts of things. And it's, it's being kind of attuned to those moments um, that are going to be sympathetic to your, your goals and your style um, is, is really kind of one way of, of kind of interacting in the, in the world, with the world in a way that kind of makes fiction that's productive. I see, I see. Does, uh, does your wife write with a pen name, or does she write under her normal name? Oh, no, she writes under her own name. Kristen Tracy is her name, and you know she's done uh, a bunch of, of young adult novels that mainly have female characters in them. Um, you know, main characters are female. And, and then has also uh, uh, has two um, uh, picture books that are just coming out, too, and several other books that are kind of in the works. I see. Well, hey, those interested in young adult and or picture books... Go check out Kristen Tracy. Yeah, we'll do we'll do whole lots of exposure in this interview. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So, were there any stories in the in the glassy burning floor of hell that um, came from any similarly, I guess, odd or, or you know, sort of just stick in your brain type life experiences, or any funny stories? Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I think there were moments that um, in in all you know in in all my books, I think there are moments where where a story kind of started from uh, an unexpected moment or something happening. Um, I'm trying to think of specifically with Glassy Burning Floor if there's a story that really was that way. And it's it's more often it's it's just there's like little moments or little bits of things. Hmm. Um, so, for instance, the story I was just talking about, Mind and Comer, um, was, uh, you know, it really did partly come from not only my interest in, in, in the Miley, but uh, also in just my memories of, of this kind of time with my 
great-grandmother kind of as she was approaching her own death um and and so so it's really you know things like that just little things that you can kind of grab a hold of that start to take you different ways and i'd say there's lots of like little like moments that i only probably would recognize as as coming from life in my stories um uh but uh that are definitely there so um, i guess the one that would be the most that way would be hospice Mm. Um, which is um, uh, a story, very short piece I wrote, um, it, which is about um, someone who's in, who finds themselves incapable of drawing their breath, which also feels very weird now that, um, you know, the, we've had the pandemic. And in fact, this was written, this is probably the oldest story in this particular collection. Uh. Um, but I had, maybe 10 years ago, I had um, uh, a, a weird lung collapse and, and had this experience of, of, of kind of collapsing the hospital. So a lot of the details are, are about that. And, and, you know, even though I, I think a lot of the kind of specific details about the relationship are not just the, 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 the little details about just the experience, I think, are derived from that. Interesting. I'm sorry to hear you went through that experience because it was described quite, quite, quite difficultly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's described quite difficultly because I could... Um, yeah, because I lived through that, and so it, it ends up. And there's something for me very um, uh, uh, weirdly, weirdly um, palliative about um, being able to 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 put it into language and, in a way, take it out of myself by just kind of translating into this thing on the page. So, but yeah, there's lots of little moments. Like there's there's in the glassy burning floor of hell. There's a particular hotel room uh, described, which which. Um, has you know the very strange kind of thing where the toilet's part of the room and that's based on a room that i actually was in in in, in a foreign country at one point things like that all kind of circle oh, around. Wow. where was it uh that was in that was actually in france but it was years ago uh and it was in a very small town and so it was the kind of thing where um you know if you're in a if you're in a small town out of the middle of nowhere and you haven't bothered to make hotel reservations you take what you what you can take so, but <laughs> it's so. it's weird because i would say that whole that that title story the hotel that's described in that is a kind of amalgam of maybe five or six different places that i've stayed in and and so I'm, I'm taking bits and pieces of the world as i know it and kind of bringing them together to make something that hopefully generates a certain kind of mood or affect i see i see um, to sort of, uh, I guess, uh, take a step back and look at some of your earlier uh, works. Um, so this particular book, I'm sure you recognize Altman's Tongue. Um, and those who are fans of Brian may know that this book that I'm currently holding in my hand um, was Brian's first novel um, to come out with Knopf. Uh, well, in his first novel ever is what I mean by that. Um, and it was also the first book I read by you. And I was curious because I noticed a very distinct shift between... Uh, the days of of Altman's tongue, what I refer to as the your tough as nails work, um, and to your current stuff, I think your earlier stuff, um, I've noticed it has a bit of a unique kind of obscurity and intensity to it. Um, many of the stories in Altman's tongue are incredibly, incredibly short, just you know, a, a page or so. Um, and I'm curious to know the ideas in the days of of Altman's tongue and the in the days of Celestial Birds. Um, I'm curious. How do you feel looking back on your past work in comparison to your current work? Do you notice a difference? Do you notice, you know, much of a shift? Yeah. Well, I, I definitely notice a difference, and it's it's interesting. Uh, the Den of Celestial Birds are, are 
it was published after Altman's time, but the stories were mainly written before Altman's tongue. Mm. And and that one, I mean, there's a kind of more um, almost magic realist style to it. There's a kind of different sort of shape to the stories. Um, and then Altman's tongue is, I would say, probably my most severe book. Um, the stories are very stripped down. Um, and, and, you know, there was so much of, of that book as an effort to do as much as I possibly can with as little as I possibly can. And so the, the, a lot of the stories are, are, are fairly shocking and fairly abrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I, I think after writing that, and part of that was due, I was working with an editor at the time named, named Gordon Lish, and, and he really encouraged that kind of style. A lot of the stories were originally published in a magazine he had called The Quarterly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and I, I think I was partly writing um, as a way of, of uh, you know, as because I knew that was somewhere that would publish me. Um, but, but you know, there, there are stories in that, like um, the Sansa Affair, which is a fairly late story, um, which starts to get more expansive and is starting to play around with the crime genre in a particular way. Um, and, and a few other pieces that are kind of starting to, to, to get longer. Um, and then and then I just I feel like, you know, as I've kind of I, I like those stories. I'm pretty happy with that book. Um, there's some of those stories in there I'm, I'm very, very happy with. Um, but kind of as I've moved forward in time, I, I've become more interested in, in in kind of expanding a little bit, seeing how much I can do, allowing a little more emotion into the stories, uh, allowing something else to start to happen. And and so so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it's funny because I sometimes meet people and they'll talk about how their favorite book is Altman's Tongue. And that's great. I, I, I like that it is. But um, I do feel like the, the work since then has started to go in a little different direction, um, more genre conscious. I mean, I feel like there's always a little aspect of that in my work, uh, even in those first in that first book. But but I, I feel like it, it's, uh, you know, be something that's become more and more central to my work as I've um, continued to develop. So I see. How do you feel about the uh, um, the novels that were reprinted by Coffee House in 16? Sorry, in uh, well, so so yeah, it was four books that were well, how many were reprinted? Three were reprinted, I guess. So there's Father of Lies, there's um, The Open Curtain, um, there's uh, uh, that's when uh, Collapse of Horses was issued, and there's Last Days. Um, of those, probably my f- the one I like the best is is uh, Last Days. Hmm. Um, I, I, I like the, the way it is kind of a riff on a noir. Uh, it's a very, very dark book, but I also think it's a very funny book and it's really crazy. Um, so it was really, really fun to write. I'm actually right now I'm working on a sequel to that, which is going to be called Phantom Limb. And, uh, I'm about, um, a hundred pages into that. So that's some bombshell news right there. <laughs> Phantom Limb, man, that sounds, that sounds really good. I, yeah, last days. I I see what you mean with the simultaneous dark and um, comedy to it, kind of resulting mm-hmm. in this very surreal atmosphere. What made you want to write a sequel? Well, you know, I I just I I I've always I liked that book, and that book originally started. The first section of that book was its own kind of chapbook, and it's and I published it kind of individually. And then when I finished that, I thought, you know, there's more of this story to be told, and and so I ended up kind of writing the second. Um, basically the last two-thirds of it and making it as its own book last day. Um, but I, I just, you know, I, I think the last words of that book are where now, what next? and and uh, Or something very close to that. And I just kept on thinking about, you know, I just kept on having these ideas for where he might go after this or what might happen to, 
the main character after this and so 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 yeah and exploring that and uh, and it's gotten very strange and so what you would expect from the first book but uh, it's strange in a slightly different way so we'll see where it goes well, that is very interesting and exciting, I will say. Those watching uh, in the visual format, if not, you're just going to have to imagine it. But Last Days, this is Last Days right here, published by Coffee House in 16. You're looking at it backwards, sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, go give it a read because apparently we're about to get a continuation. Anyhow, um, to take it back to Altman's Tongue, one more question I had about it. Um, sure. So this is something you've spoken publicly about um, before, something that is in a sense notorious. Um... Altman's tongue was met by pretty heavy objection uh, from the Mormon Church, and yeah. it's interesting because I read these like the, in the jacket of there, and it says um, uh, something along the lines of, you know, Brian Evanson writes incredibly dark things, but something you might not expect is that he's a very devout Mormon, because um, this I guess was the original publication of it, and there are stories in that book that depict um, religion in a very either critical or sort of dark and surreal way. Um, the Blank, uh, that whole trilogy of stories, I think is a good mm -hmm. example of that, but also um, uh, a few others in there, the titles of which are currently escaping. Oh, my it's head, okay. of course. But oh, yeah, yeah, so I mean, I'm curious. Also usually in a fantastical way, so there's no sense that it's like depicting Mormonism per se or anything mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, for whatever reason, Knopf, um, when we, they published the, the, the book, um, they wanted to use that language um, on the book jacket, and I objected to it because I just thought it was likely to cause me problems. Um, mm. But but it just happened; it went out anyway. It was like I objected, and they said, "Oh, it's already gone to press." Uh. Um, and um, and I don't know that it really had. I think that the editor of the book was probably he wanted his way. He's kind of a notorious guy. <laughs> um, but but so uh, yeah, and then that ended up causing me a, a fair amount of problems partly because you know basically what happened i was at brigham young i was teaching there as a faculty member um when i was hired at brigham young i was really frank with them about the kind of writing i was doing and and asked them if it was going to be a, an issue and you know the, the other faculty who were on the hiring committee um said said you know well is there any sex in it and i said well you know not not really um and they said oh well that's it'll be fine then if it's only violence it's okay <laughs> and <laughs> which seemed weird to me, but I was like, okay, well, they probably know. Um, and, and you know, what happened was um, I was actually taking another teacher's class and he asked me to come in while he was out of town and, and talk a little bit about my book. And, um, and I did that and read a few stories and there just happened to be someone in the class who was very conservative Mormon um, who um, uh, was, uh, uh, had relatives who, who had connections to Mormon general authorities who were the people who are kind of at the top of the Mormon church. Hmm. And, and she, she read the book and ended up writing a letter to them and, um, and t saying how evil the book was. And, and the general authorities um, sent the letter back to my department chair and they called me in and, and, and demanded that I defend the book. Um, and I didn't know who the student was. I didn't have, you know, any, any of that information. And it felt weird to me to be writing to, in response to an anonymous letter, but I, but I did that. Um, and wrote about, you know, why I was doing what I, I did, why I felt like it was something that was valid to do and why it was important. Um, and eventually, um, you know, I just didn't hear anything. So eventually I asked my department chair and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I sent that stuff to the people who sent the letter. And I had a cover letter, showed me the cover letter. And it said something like, in short, Brian Evanson understands that what he did was wrong. And, 
that further publications like it will bring repercussions. And, you know, mm. at the time I was like, you know, I, I, I actually thought I was defending my work. Um, <laughs> and, and that's my thing I was doing here. And there was no talk of further repercussions or anything like that. And, and you know, I, my, I don't have any intention to, to not do the work I want to do. So I need to, you know, so I had a long kind of back and forth with them in which they mainly just stonewalled me and refused to, to answer, you know, asking what, you know, if they were basically telling me that I would be fired if I published um, the work I wanted to do. And eventually I got enough of a yes that I decided to, to leave and go elsewhere. Um, and that was kind of, you know, it was so that it was basically... And it became a very big controversy in Utah, um, uh, which also was complicated in various ways. Um, but that was really the start of my leaving the Mormon church. Um, and, you know, it took me another five or six years to kind of separate completely from it. But uh, um, uh, it just, I, I really started um, to feel like if I wanted to, I, what, what I was finding was that at a certain point I was doing too much in reaction. Mm. To Mormonism and, and that to get um, a, a sense of who I wanted to be and, and and kind of what my my ethical demeanor was actually really was I, I needed to just have a separation from it and so eventually um, they kept on calling me in and, and trying to control what I wrote and eventually I just said you know let's let's move forward with with excommunication and at that point they were like wait 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 we, you know, <laughs> we don't need to do that um, pray with me <laughs> and uh, I, uh, you know, but it, by that point, it was like, it, it became clear to me, it was, it was partly a control mechanism to keep me in the Mormon church. So, and so, so I ended up um, petitioning for excommunication, had my re records removed. And, and, you know, at the time I thought that was going to be terrifying um, just because I'd grown up Mormon. Um, I, my family went six generations back with Mormonism. And so we, we really had this long history with it. Um, but, you know, in the end, it was just, it was a, a very positive thing. Um, I, I feel um, very happy to be free of religion at this point. So, and, you know, I think you can be outside of religion and still be a very ethical person. So, Well, mad respect. I mean, that's, that's some, some important questions to answer. Um, mm. And I'm curious, undoubtedly some of the stories in Altman's Tongue were written, you know, probably a while before its publication. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm curious, when writing those stories that maybe sort of approached the territory of, of, of organized religion a little bit more, did they, did you feel they kind of like clashed with your worldview? Did they kind of feel a little disconnected from what you believed on a spiritual level or, or was it more natural than that? Well, I mean, I think it was a little more natural than that. I mean, I think I'd always been interested in dark fiction and part of the reason I was interested in it, I mean, I don't, I think that you can discuss very dark things without condoning them. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think it's partly that. And, and there, you know, there's, I think I kind of began from this space in Mormonism. Uh, one of the Mormon church leaders, a guy named Brigham Young, um, said at one point that everything uh, is worthy of study, uh, everything on earth and everything in heaven and everything in hell. And I just took that very seriously, the idea that, you know, you, you, you should think very seriously about just every aspect of, 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 uh, of, of what's possible um, and, and explore that. So, so, so I, I, I didn't really see it as a contradiction. I mean, I think one of the, with that book in particular, um, I mean, I think it really did come out of my Mormon upbringing, um, partly because, you know, the thing I was saying before about the book, um, uh, when I was a kid growing up in Utah, um, 
the same thing would happen with R-rated movies, where officially, as a Mormon, you weren't supposed to go see R-rated movies. Um, but people would always say, my, my peers would say, oh, it's okay to go see it as long as there's not, you know, cysts in it. Or there's not, you know, you're not seeing nudity. Um, as if somehow it was like it was more okay to see people killed on screen than it was to see a body. That's a very and, American idea, and, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always thought it was really weird. It is definitely an American thing, and, and you know, it's not exclusive Mormonism. But but that made me think a little bit about, you know, just the way in which people were were kind of desensitized to violence. And, 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 and you know, I think one of the reasons, one of the things I was trying to do kind of thematically with Altman's Tongue when I was writing it was to resensitize people to violence. And I think it is, a, mm. you know, it's an intense and difficult book in a lot of ways, so... But, you know, it's also like, you know, as I said, there's there's not really that much that's connected directly to Mormonism in the book. There's almost nothing. Um, and it's not till, you know, later I wrote a book called Father of Lies, um, which which is pretty a direct critique of religion mm-hmm. and not Mormonism per se. But I mean, there's certainly connections. Um, and, and, you know, so, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's um. Yeah, I was still part of the Mormon Church too when I wrote that, and uh, um, yeah, I, 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 uh, that was probably a sign I was on my way out. <laughs> <laughs> the sign near the end. Huh? Um, speaking of books that uh, that sort of th- that are directly related to Mormonism, there's also this lovely one right here, The Open Curtain. Um, yeah, my personal favorite by you, and um, this story. But really this story and a lot of your stories, I, I sort of find this in Last Days, I sort of found this a little bit in Father of Lies, and even to a degree in Leg. Um, there's a motif I find where, and even in some of the stories in Altman's Tongues, like Killing Cats, um, yeah. the motif of a character sort of being uh, sort of coerced or maybe misled and manipulated or eventually coaxed into committing violence. Um, yeah. seems to be a recurring thing in the open curtain. You have the dynamic between Rudd and Lael, uh, Father of mm-hmm. Lies, you have sort of between Fox and his brain, um, mm-hmm. with Last Days, Klein, and the entire cults. And I'm just curious, this continually recurring motif, where does it sort of originate? I mean, that probably does come from Mormonism, to be honest. Interesting. Um, just because there's there's so much emphasis put on, on choice and, and being responsible for your choices. Um, but but yeah, I mean that that is something that comes up again and again. These uh, these ideas of these people who who are who allow themselves, I guess is how I'd phrase it, to be coaxed to doing things that may, they they shouldn't do, and end up kind of through s- slow steps, kind of moving into darker and darker spaces. So you know something like Last Days, it's like he he's on a path um, that he doesn't realize how dark that path's going to get until it's really gone very very far. And then once he he's on it, his momentum is such that he he doesn't feel like he can step off of it, even though it's, he feels at the same time like it's making him less and less human. Um, and you know, Open Curtain is actually another of my you know next to Last Days and Open Curtain are probably the, the, my two favorite novels I've done. Mm. Um, and and the thing about that book is it's 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 set very much in Utah that I grew up in. There's any kind of details. Um, that are that are connected to the place that I think um, you know make it very very vivid, and and it's so much about you know what is it like to grow up in a particular culture, and and especially if you're someone who's who's struggling or damaged in various way, and obviously um, 
Rudd's damage is pretty severe. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he uh, you know, I, I still think, you know, I try to, to be deal with him at least relatively sympathetically. So, and with Lindy as well. Um, yeah. So, so it, it is, it is like, you know, in, in that book, I mean, I think so much is about, you know, what's happening to, to send him on the path that he's going on. Um, and is there any way to stop it? And I don't know if I have any answers to it, but I'm, I'm interested in just that path and where it's going. Mm, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, to take, to lighten things up a little bit. Um, yeah. I am curious, uh, you have uh, a number of, uh, how many children do you have? I have three, three children. Yeah. I promise that's related. That wasn't just a random question. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry, you can ask when it's not related. <laughs> <laughs> just don't want to come out of the blue with that. Um, right. But uh, I have heard, I heard from a previous interview with you that you have um, children of, of varying ages. You have older kids and then you mm-hmm. have sort of younger kids. I'm curious, do any of them, but I guess in particular the older kids, do they read your work? Do they ever, have they ever read anything about uh, you? They, they do. My oldest child, Sarah, who's a, uh, uh, they're non-binary, um, uh, live up in, in Minneapolis. Um, they designed the covers for the um, coffee house books, mm. and so so they're a visual artist and 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 do a lot of graphic design, and, and they do read the books. Um, and Valerie, my um, um, my other uh, my my daughter, um, uh, also uh, 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 has read them. My son Max, who's like eight. Valerie is is she's born in ninety one, so. Um, you know, is, is a little bit older and, and Sarah's slightly younger than that. Um, uh, you know, they, they both can have read them and kind of can make sense of them and I think enjoy them at least to some degree. And, and, uh, uh, and but Max, no, he's not. <laughs> I, I don't feel like, I think he needs to be at least like 15 before he reads them. Yeah, hasn't crossed the age line, perhaps. That's, that's right, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the covers um, because I had a bit of a, revelation um while looking at these books recently um mm-hmm. those familiar with the coffee house reprint will know that the four uh books father of lies last day's open curtain and a collapse of horses if you put the books together in a quartet they form a beast that was sort of an image a collective mm-hmm. image um right however and i have not heard anybody else sort of spot this so i felt very special myself when i figured it out um but the books then published after that um or one of them about to be published. I'm juggling like mm-hmm. 18 different tomes right now. Um, so we've got the collection of The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell and then Song for the Unraveling of the World, both done in the same visual style. But these do form patterns with the original books. If you put Song That's for the Unraveling right. World next to Open Curtain, I found something there, Father of Lies and Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, um, as well as Glassy Burning Floor being put next to the Open Curtain. And um, this blew my mind a little bit. And so I'm curious to know um, what's going on there. Well, I think when we did the original four books, we had this concept of, of all the books kind of, um, talk, you know, adding up to form one picture of a kind of beast. And then, um, you know, when we published Song for the Unraveling of the World, we, we thought a little bit about it. And and um, Coffee House and, and Sarah and I just thought, you know, what if we just do like a replacement head? So it's like you have this beast with replaceable parts. <laughs> and so, so you have a head that can kind of substitute for the head that's, you know, in the original four, and then um, glassy burning floor substitutes for another quadrant of the beast. 
Um, and I, you know, I don't know if we'll keep on going in that direction with future books. We, we may or may not. I think Sarah's getting a little tired of just doing parts of a beast. <laughs> um, and, and they're very talented. So I think they can do some, you know, really amazing things with the covers, but, but it has been nice to think of, you know, the, 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 the cover concept itself as something that's kind of communicating. And I don't, I don't really think I've seen other covers that have done that so much. Um, there, there's covers that kind of similarly tone in terms of color and things like that. But the idea of kind of using multiple colors to kind of form an image is, and then reform it with different covers is, is I think, pretty unique. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It um, it took me back quite a surprise upon upon discovering it. But uh, it's very interesting. I I'm just picturing like an 80 book display of like all the different ones assembled in a variety of yeah, ways. Probably yeah. won't go that far. Yeah, I mean, I, so there's yeah, there's de- there's several different con- con- uh, combinations you can do now, and obviously as you add more, there's all sorts. So, but you're not the only one. I mean, I've, I've heard people who. You know, there's been plenty of people where I've shown that at a reading, and they've like gasped because they didn't realize that the books they had actually fit together. <laughs> That's funny. Um, another question that you may have gotten before: your character names are very unique. Um, very unique mm-hmm. selections. We've got names like Borchert, uh, Klein, Paya, Trolley. My personal favorite, Raffendus, which took a, a bit of pr- pronouncing on my part. Um, right. Where do these names come from? Why, why select these specifically, often Slavic names? Um, you know, I, I think partly because there's something about um, those names. Slavic names and Germanic names have kind of hard sounds to them. Um, and so they, for me, there's a particular mood that goes with those names. Very different kind of sound than, um, you know, French names or Italian names or, or, you know, even a lot of just common American names. Um, and so, so, and there's also like something... For, for me, a lot of those names have a kind of like affect to them. I mean, Hecla, I think it's discussed in one of the stories, has a particular meaning that goes with the name, and that's something I can kind of play with um, while I'm putting the story together. Um, and then and then I just I think the other thing is they're they're kind of they kind of work almost as an indication where they kind of let you know you're entering into a space which is strange and not the same as the normal world. Mm. Um, I would imagine if you're actually from Scandinavia, it wouldn't feel that way exactly. But <laughs> um, but even then, I think that you know there's enough kind of strange names that it makes sense. And how about the name Altman? Um, this is a name that appears multiple times under multiple characters in Altman's tongue, but yeah. also appears, I believe, in Dead Space Martyr. Correct? It does. Yeah. 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 What's the meaning um, there? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. For some that that's a name. Um, Altman is a name that um, I have. I keep returning to for some reason. And it's not that it's always the same character. It's just that there's like a kind of, you know, family resemblance between those characters. And, and it's, it's a name that I just have kept on returning to. And in fact, with, with dead space martyr, I mean, the tricky thing with that, that was very strange is I, I had, you know, Almond's tongue, I had that name. And then when the video game for dead space came out, there was a character named Michael Altman in it. And and when they asked me if I would, um, you know, if I wanted to write something, uh, write a novel based on Dead Space, you know, that was the first thing that occurred to me. I'd played the video game, so I kind of knew it a little bit. But it it, uh, it occurred to me that, you know, this is, you know, this this is who I should write about. Interesting. You know, so it was character. complete coincidence that Altman was in there. That was a complete coincidence. But it was wow. also like, when, when I was writing that, I mean, they... Uh, 
what what I so when when you're writing contract novels like that, they usually have you kind of put together a proposal in terms of how you do it. And so I put together this proposal, and and in the proposal, it's like a, it's supposed to be a few pages that end up being like ten or twenty pages. Um, but I ended up you know, su- suggesting or proposing a kind of dramatic change in in the lore of the story uh, and that you get in the video game, and and had a way to kind of make it work so you could kind of understand you know, why the video first video game had presented it this way and then how it had changed. And I thought, yeah, there's no way they'll let me get away with this. This is a million dollar property. Um, they've already invested a lot. And they came back and they're like, yeah, we love this. We'll, we'll go ahead with this. So it was very <laughs> exciting to be that, you know, they let me do Michael Altman in the way that I wanted to do it. And really kind of, you know, that was a really fun book to write. Um, partly, you know, because I'd played the video game and so when they asked me to do it, I kind of knew that, um, you know, I had a sense of the feel. I knew that my style would probably work pretty well for it. Nice, nice. Um, speaking of contract novels, um, you wrote the novelization, um, I believe it was under B.K. Evanson, uh, for the Rob Zombie film Lords of Salem. Yes, um, yeah. How did that yeah. connection happen? Did you did you happen to meet Rob Zombie personally, or what happened there? Uh, well, it was, it was kind of this funny thing where I got approached by um, an agent who... Um, was interested in doing it and and just you know thought that my style would work well with 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 rob zombies and um and then yeah i mean basically what happened i mean obviously there's the movie that's um lords of salem he was working on the movie at the time um we we didn't i don't think we actually spoke face to face ever we you know we we, we kind of communicated in other ways and um but he you know he had a treatment that he sent me for the movie eventually he sent me the script for the movie and then i kind of just worked on it and developed a story that was very close to the script in fact um and then what happened kind of in the process of shooting the movie and cutting it i think his first cut of the movie was something like three and a half hours long or four hours long and so suddenly he he was compressing it to get it down to less than half of that length um and so it became a much more um you know, a movie that kind of moved forward much more mysteriously and kind of very much was oriented around something, um, you know, image rather than plot. Hmm. And so, so you know, by the time the book was being published and the film was out, it, it just, they felt really very different. And, you know, I think the way we always saw it was um, that, the, um, that the book um, and the movie were meant to kind of work together. Hmm. Um, that that a lot of the things that remain mysterious in 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 the movie are explained in the book and, and vice versa. So I see, I see. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, another such notable crossover between uh, your work and cinema. Um, the director E. Elias Mirhij, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, mm-hmm. He created a film, a short film uh, that didn't get a, a whole lot of release, I believe, and, entitled "The Din of Celestial Birds." Um, which notably is a title of a story by you and a collection by you. Were right. you what uh, were you involved in that at all? What was there a crossover there? Or? No, I, I wasn't involved in that. I'm not sure if there was a crossover. I don't. Uh, I, I've actually communicated with him um, since then, um, but we've never you know, discussed that book and, and or that film in particular. Um, and you know, I, I, it, it could be that there's a connection there, but I, I think that the the place I got that title from, uh, The Den of Celestial Birds, was from um, a philosopher named Alfonso Lingus, who used it to talk about um, uh, 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 
stuff um, that was done, which is something that Freud talks about. But but the the person who um, you know uh, Daniel Paul Schraber, who wrote a book called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, in which he explains why he is crazy, but but he should be released from from um, <laughs> from being in prison. So um, so so. So that was kind of where I was coming from with the title, even though it's like a very different sort of book. Um, and I've seen that. I, I actually like Merhige's Mer- uh, uh, film, um, but I, I, I can't tell for sure if it's connected. Huh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I've only seen Begotten by him, which uh, I absolutely loved, and it scarred me permanently. Um, yeah, something, I think that's a good description of Begotten. Yeah. yeah, Something that could be said for many of the books currently sitting on my floor. Mm. by yours mm. truly or, or you <laughs> um something i read in the uh the the back portion the afterward um of the open curtain was that there was uh you had an idea for another novel to be set in a world quote unquote not unlike that of the open curtain um yeah. possibly some kind of semi sequel or something like that um yeah. i've already had you announce the sequel the last days so i was just curious to know if there's anything uh in the pipeline there um, you know, that's something I I actually uh, have about 70 pages of notes um, and a kind of pretty detailed plot description of, a, of a, a piece that would take place in that same world. And that has, you know, there, there's similarities and differences for sure, but there's there are, you know, definitely connections. Um, and, and I think what happened, it was like I, I went to an artist colony and um, and just worked up this whole kind of design for the book with a lot of kind of description of how it would work. Um, and, and in a way, I was almost too specific about it. And so mm. by the time I was done, I said, well, I, I, you know, maybe I don't need to write the book now. Oh. <laughs> um, so so we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I think that's a project that I, I see myself as potentially going back to um, once I forget a little bit more about, um, you know, the way in which... Um, uh, I might, you know, approach it. So, so, but I, I think I'll get there eventually. That's interesting. Yeah, I hear a lot of people talk about, like, me myself as a writer. I, I find I can't write too many notes about something because they say that you don't want to tell your story before you, you know, mm-hmm. actually sit down to write the actual thing. Um, yeah, which I think is interesting. Yeah, it is. And in, in fact, so so basically, I ended up not too long ago kind of putting together a proposal for a. Um, TV show based on on the, the the notes I had for um, this this kind of book and mm-hmm. and maybe that you know I, I don't know it's so hard to ever get anything like that made but that may be the direction it either ends up going or just the act of doing that may end up taking me back into it in some way I see. and taking me back into the novel in some way. I see that'd be interesting. Um... Okay, we have covered a lot of territory, um, a lot okay. of very interesting and and deep and also uh, often quite dark territory. Um, to finish this review, I'm going to ask you a question that I believe is very important. Um, pancakes or waffles? Uh, pancakes. Interesting. Why? Well, I, there's just, there's such a variety of pancakes and I'm very happy, you know, so, so when I say pancakes, I'm also, I'm including crepes. I'm including, you know, plant pa- mm. pan- pa- pancakes with blueberries, um, just, just everything like that. That yeah. really works for me. 
That's a good point. I never thought about that. Well, there you have it, folks. Brian Evanson chooses pancakes. So did you choose, did you choose waffles? I, ch- I chose waffles. I mean, I think that's okay. I mean, you can also do a lot with waffles and you can put a lot on them. That's true. And they can be crunchy too, which I feel like is yeah, valuable yeah. versatility. And they got little syrup catchers in them, little grid-like yeah. syrup catchers. You know, one of the reasons I think I said pancakes, I mean, this is totally off the topic and you can cut it if you want, <laughs> is, is when I lived in Denver, there was this restaurant, which is a pancake restaurant, and they just had such a variety of pancakes from different nationalities, ranging from like the Dutch baby, which is amazing if you've never had that, to normal pancakes, to crepes, to kind of super thin Swedish pancakes. And and so I just, I think I'm naturally kind of prone to think of just a, a larger amount of variety with pancakes. Let's see. What restaurant was this? I, I live in Boulder, actually, so I'm not following. Oh, it's, uh, well, there's one in Boulder, too. It's the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, What's it called? Uh, I think it has pancake in the title. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a good start. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'll I'll try to figure it out, but it has like a, a someone flipping a pancake. It used to have on the sign. So, uh, um, but but yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that that necessarily is going to make it so that you um, change your your ways in terms of, of <laughs> your your preferences. But but it might. Yeah. It's all about planting the seeds, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, or maybe it's not there anymore. I mean, it's been years since I lived there, so yeah. Hopefully, the pan- pandemic didn't wipe it out. Meantime, so. Yeah, no yeah. doubt. All right. Well, yeah. those of you who have come to listen slash watch this interview, thank you very much. If you are unfamiliar with Brian Evanson's work, get your life together and purchase one of his books or all of them, and and just have at and be warned it might take you to some dark places, but it will be worth it in the end. Um, and those of you who are familiar with Brian Evanson but not familiar with me, my name is CSW and I create a horror podcast by the name of Incarnation Red. Uh, season 2 is set to debut this Halloween and so hopefully you all tune in for that. Hopefully you all tune in for him and thank you for tuning in for this. Mm-hmm.